Well, it's uh, <clears throat> certainly upon us, isn't it? The decorations are in the process of going up. And, you know, just being here this morning, surrounded with the sights and the sounds of the season, the sentiments that all surround us at Advent time, peace and joy and love, and like uh, Pastor John was talking about last week, the sense that Aslan is on the move in our world in some significant ways. And hope. And hope. And so as we just kind of get drawn in by all of that this morning, I find myself wondering what it is that we're hoping for for Christmas this year. I mean really hoping for. Or maybe even more than that, I kind of wonder about how our ability to hope at all is holding up. Now, I know it's somewhat customary at this time of year to be hoping for things and stuff, things that we'd like to acquire. You know, Christmas usually gets promoted that way. And when people ask us what we'd like for Christmas, that's usually the kind of thing they're talking about. And of course, it's a much easier conversation to have and one that involves much simpler and less complicated answers than the kind of conversation we might have if we were to talk about the kinds of hope that stirs within us on much deeper levels, at least if we're still even in the business of hoping at all and have not given it up or kind of lost track of it somewhere along the way. And that's something that can happen because that kind of hope the real kind of hope is not always simple and it's not always easy to sustain. And yet, if the season is about anything, it's about that and the impact that hope can have. And that's the way it's been from its very beginning, actually, which I'd like to invite you to reflect on a little bit this morning as we take just a few moments to look at and listen to just how complex and how challenging and yet transformative hope can be, especially the hope that we celebrate this season. And I want to give you just a glimpse of what that looks like through a video that we just want to share with you for a moment here. And as you watch, I'd like you to watch and listen for the hope. Let's go ahead and look at that. so wonderful at the beginning was just how obvious it was impossible unbelievable unthinkable but just so clearly and obviously God I was 15 when it started I was a good girl passionate about God. I love to hear the stories about our people, about how God had rescued us, how he'd stepped in and done amazing things. I secretly hoped that I would see 
something of that in my lifetime. I dreamt that I would see God come through for us again. And then one day I was in the house on my own. I was preparing the midday meal and suddenly there was a man in the room. And everything changed. Not so that you could see it, but it felt different. It felt like God had come close. There was this heaviness and I was too scared almost to breathe. And the man told me not to be afraid. That God was pleased with me. That God had chosen me. That I was going to have a baby. The son of God. And I remember so clearly what I thought. I thought, if this is what God wants, then this is what I choose. There are so many times since then that I have longed to believe like I did then, to see things so clearly. But then comes the waiting. First it was nine months. Nine months of this hope and this promise growing inside of me, this peace of God. Nine months of watching my parents struggle with their shame and embarrassment, knowing that I'd let them down. Nine months of watching the people that I grew up with pull away from me and talk about me behind my back, scorn me for shaming my parents. And nine months of watching Joseph struggle to make his decision. Even after the angel came, it was still hard for him. But then when it all happened, it was beautiful. We were in Bethlehem, miles away from everyone who misunderstood. And it was foreign and chaotic and just so perfectly orchestrated by God. wonderful thing was that for the first time since I saw my cousin I wasn't the only one who believed there were shepherds and there were men from another country and they knew that this was from God and that night I know that Joseph believed too was 15 years ago and life feels very different now ordinary difficult I worry that we won't find enough food to feed the children I worry that Joseph won't find enough work and I look at my son Jesus this gentle, quiet boy. And I wonder who he is. 
I wonder if I've ever understood what it meant. I wonder if I've played my part. I wonder if I failed him as a mother. I wonder where the story will lead. I wonder who he thinks he is. I want so much to believe, but sometimes it feels beyond me. And that's when I have to tell myself the story all over again. Of how God sent an angel to a young girl to tell her that she would have a baby. The hope of the world. just a glimpse of what it must have meant or looked like for Mary to embrace the hope of the world. Amazing and rich and deeply moving and yet at times profoundly difficult and challenging. Hope is a posture that can be difficult to maintain, especially during those times when you feel like you're in it alone. There's the promise, and there's the waiting. The always winter and never Christmas that Pastor John talked about last week. The already and the not yet that New Testament writers talk about. There are those around us who don't seem to get it or understand the bigger story. And we're not always even sure that we're fully grasping the story that we have fallen into, to use the once upon eternity language, or the story that we find ourselves in either. We draw meaning and encouragement from the stories of how God has been with us in the past, but we also live immersed in a present that continually tries to talk us out of or convince us that living the way God invites us to live and embracing the things that God invites us to embrace in every aspect of our lives is just not realistic or practical or the way things are or the way you get things done. You know, that might be fine for church, but we're not talking about salvation here. I have a business to run, after all. A world where cynicism and skepticism are king and where hope seems, oh, I don't know, audacious, maybe. And at such times, as Mary mentions in the video, continuing to believe can just seem beyond us. And so hope begins to fade, or maybe it just gets placed in something else, until we return to the story, the story that reminds us about what is real and allows that hope to be rekindled once again, which is what this season at its best 
is really all about. And actually, that's what Luke is inviting us to do as well in the first chapter of his gospel. As he describes for us what it first looked like for Mary to embrace that hope, the hope of the world. And if you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along there, you're welcome to do so. I'd like you to listen, though, to how Luke describes it in chapter 1 of his gospel, beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Her name was Mary. The angel said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You know, it's important that we don't read over those words too quickly and allow the significance of that statement to sink in because that is the way that God addresses us from a standpoint of grace. And that's the foundation on which all of this hope is built. Well, let's keep reading. The angel says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then finally, her response in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. I don't know how you even begin to wrap your mind around a conversation like that. What it would have been like to have been Mary, what it would have been like to have been there. She was going to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, the hope of the people of Israel. And yet, and yet, the way the hope was coming into the world was complicated and it was not going to be easy. In fact, you know how the story unfolds. As you read on, you see that Mary's hope was assailed from the moment it began by her friends, probably by her parents, certainly by the community that she lived in, who were either unwilling or unable to get what was really happening or to understand or frame her story in any other way than they were accustomed to framing their stories. Those who didn't know the circumstances would naturally assume the worst. And probably even among the few who did know the story, except perhaps for Elizabeth and Zechariah, who had a story of their own, they would have been at least a little cynical or skeptical about what the story said. And then there was Joseph, who, though profoundly changed by his own visit by the angel, would still have had a difficult time. He still had to deal with the attitudes, 
the people that he saw at work every day, the village where he did business, the community in which he lived. Maybe he had some of his own personal stuff to deal with too. See, that was the paper that the hope of the world came wrapped in. Now, there were, of course, some pretty awesome moments in all of this that you don't want to overlook. The birth of a child, an event that is amazing in itself, regardless of what the circumstances are, but even more because of who this child was. There were angels on the hillsides of Bethlehem. They were proclaiming good news of great joy from which no one was to be excluded. There was the visit of the shepherds and later the dignitaries from the east who came bearing gifts at a time when they were greatly needed. Great moments of recognition and affirmation which filled them with a sense of hopeful anticipation about what was coming. And then just a few days later as they went to the temple and had a chance to, to be with the priest there, Simeon, who dedicated Jesus. We have these words that Simeon spoke found in chapter two beginning with verse 29. Listen to what Simeon says. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It's hard for me to read those words and not hear Michael Card singing them in the background. It's such a beautiful prophecy here. And then Luke says, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said to them. And that, it seems to most of us probably, would have been a really good place for Simeon to stop. However, Simeon continues. Verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul as well. Wow. So how's that for a hopeful sounding statement? As amazing and encouraging as the first part of what Simeon had to say was, he is also pretty clear and straightforward about telling her that this long-anticipated hope will not come easily, nor will it arrive unchallenged, either by the world around them, which is only made too evident in what followed next, as Herod ordered the slaughter of children in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill him, nor would it come unchallenged by those who are closer. Nor does it come unchallenged maybe even from things that are within, as was reflected by Jesus' experience with his own family and even his own disciples, who because of how their hopes were focused, sometimes tried to talk him out of pursuing the very hope that he came to bring to the world. Now, now, you wouldn't think that in a world that was actually so hungry for the good news that Jesus came to bring, peace on earth, goodwill towards those on whom God was now showing favor, you wouldn't think that there would be quite so much resistance. But there was. And there is. 
which is why what we are invited to celebrate this season is still so important. See, it's still hard for many of us to really believe that that kingdom that Jesus proclaimed had arrived really has arrived and that we are to live that way as fully as we can right now as members of a kingdom that is already here in every area of our lives until it's finally established in all of its fullness when Jesus returns. But the truth is that living that way is not easy, particularly in a world that does not tend to operate according to the principles of that kingdom. Well, so then how do you hang on to that hope, especially in a world that keeps trying to talk us out of it? Or get us to place our hope somewhere or in something else? How do you deal with the resistance? Well, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that perhaps the greatest challenge, at least for most of us, probably doesn't lie so much with the Herods or even with the religious leaders who are kind of all caught up in their own sense of power and control, as toxic as those kind of situations can be sometimes but rather in more subtle things that work quietly below the surface for most of us, that quietly misdirect or undermine our hope. The greatest challenges for those who first heard the words of the angels and for the disciples who followed Jesus didn't come from the Roman rulers. They didn't come from the religious leaders. They came from their own internal stuff, the stuff that had shaped what ruled in their hearts. And while they had drawn a lot of really good stuff from the amazing stories in the scriptures and from their rich religious heritage in which God had worked in their way, in their midst in powerful ways, all of which had worked together to help make them who they were as God's people, there were also some less helpful things from their past. Attitudes and assumptions and prejudices and just ways of thinking about things which had also played a powerful role in shaping who they were, and which not only made it hard for them to fully grasp the hope that Jesus was offering, but even when they did begin to do so, made it difficult for them to stay focused on the hope. See, these disciples had grown up with the idea that their hopes were linked to a certain political ideology in which the coming Messiah would drive out the Roman occupation forces and restore sovereignty to Israel, and for the zealots, that included being well-armed and using force if necessary. I mean, they were the NRA of the first century. But then you had Jesus suggesting, oh, wait a minute, maybe you need to be placing your hope somewhere else in a kind of sovereignty and a kind of kingdom that was less about looking out for yourself and more about humility and serving, even to the point of loving and praying for those who you tag as enemies. Well, you can imagine how well that went over. These disciples had also grown up with the idea that their hope for pleasing God was tied to making careful distinctions between sacred and secular and between clean and unclean and who was in and who was out. But Jesus repeatedly suggested that their hope for living in a way that was pleasing to God was more about acting with compassion, even towards those who were considered outsiders 
and that what makes something clean or unclean is not about who we shun or what we touch or the kind of stuff that goes into our mouths, but the kind of stuff that comes out of our mouths. Something worth thinking about. As Micah had put it so many years before, it was about doing justly and loving mercy and walking humbly. Which, of course, brings us to the whole justice thing. I mean, these first disciples had been raised to think that their hope for justice was all about God giving people what they deserved. After all, it was high time. But Jesus suggested that their hope when it came to justice would be better placed in a realization of God's grace, which he demonstrated with things like stories about wayward sons and and loving fathers and the grace he extended to a woman who had been caught in a humiliating sin. And most of all, by God's own willingness in Jesus to fully absorb the full impact of all that sin could do so that we would not have to. All of that and more embodied a way of life that reflected the hope that we are invited to celebrate and to embrace. And all of that and more in many of the same ways the first disciples were is what we have been conditioned to resist. How many of us still struggle with the good news or with really embracing the amazing love and graciousness of God for other people and even for ourselves? And even once we do see it, how many of us still struggle to keep that in focus and not allow ourselves to be talked out of it or be blinded or deafened or numbed by our culture or our politics or our social or economic ideas which seem to seep into everything and which may also, frankly, often be directly at cross purposes with what God invites us to do and who God invites us to be and which undermine the hope that we celebrate this season. And so not unlike Peter, on the one hand, we can be proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, son of the living God. And in the next moment, acting like we're trying to talk Jesus out of the very thing he came to do. Just listen to our conversations sometime. You know, all that kingdom stuff is nice for church and religious organizations. But when it comes to the rest of our lives, well, that's just not how it's done. You've got to be practical. You can read Jesus' take on Peter's practical perspective in Matthew 16, 23, later if you wish. It's an interesting perspective. But you know, as complicated and difficult as the challenges are, and even though the answers are not always easy or simple, that basic question of what would Jesus do is still not a bad place to start, even though it's a question that's not always particularly appreciated. Because the truth is that what we celebrate this season is exactly what Jesus, in fact, did. And then he invites us to come along and follow him by living the same way. That is what is at the heart of the hope that we celebrate. After all, Jesus did not become incarnate so that we could then politely ignore him. 
it is not always easy. In fact, he said we could expect the same kind of resistance that he got. But it is oh so worth it. And that's what Paul is talking about in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians when he talks about this message of hope that Jesus came to bring and to be. Both the power of the message and the resistance to the message and how it turns the world's sense of the way things are completely upside down. Here's how he describes it in chapter 1 in verse 23. He says it is a stumbling block to Jews. It is foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He acknowledges both the struggle and the triumph again in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, beginning with about verse 8, like this. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. And then in verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. That is the gift of hope we receive in the gift of Jesus this season. A gift that Paul includes in this trinity of core realities that form one unified way of living and being that are so intertwined with each other that you can't tease them apart and which he says remain standing when everything else falls. This is how he describes those things in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. He says, and now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. Those are the things. And when John in the first chapter of his gospel tells his version of the Christmas story, he describes the same reality like this in verse 5. He says, the light is shining in the darkness. The light is shining in the darkness. And so you have to ask then, what is it for us that contributes to the darkness? or perhaps blocks the light now and then enough to cast shadows of resistance. Is it our culture? Is it our politics? Our fear? Our worry? Our fatigue? Cynicism? Economic ideas that we hold to? Lingering prejudices from our upbringing or maybe the ones we've acquired on our own? or just accepting the way things are done, even if it violates the message that Jesus was born to proclaim. John says the light is still shining in the darkness. And then, interestingly enough, there are two ways to translate the phrase that follows that. One is, and the darkness has not understood it. But the other is, but the darkness cannot extinguish it. 
And I believe this is one of those times when both translations are correct. And there is really good news in that. For he goes on to say in verse 12, yet, yet, those who receive him, those who believe in his name, to those he gives the right to become children of God. The light is shining in the darkness still. And so what are you hoping for for Christmas? Especially in light of the gift that God has given. Perhaps hoping for hope, genuine hope, is something worth considering. Because genuine hope is not just wishful thinking that ignores reality, but rather something that knows very well what it's up against and chooses to embrace the gift that is the way and the truth and the life anyway. Knowing that the story we have fallen into, the story that we've been invited into, is a story that is much bigger than we are. It's not always easy. In many ways, what Christmas celebrates makes absolutely no sense at all to the way the world around us tends to measure and evaluate things. And people won't always understand. But it is oh so worth it.